Each trip's a trip to paradise with the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Hey, hey, everybody. It is, well, if you're listening to this the day of the release, it is April 8th, 2017. Happy Saturday, happy weekend to you. And by the way, if you are hearing this, it means that uh, unfortunately I could not do a live stream from Midwest Gaming Classic for whatever reason. Either I couldn't figure out how to do it or because the stream wouldn't work or because the Wi-Fi at the hotel was jammed, which is kind of likely there are thousands of people there after all. But for whatever reason, couldn't do it. So, hey, here is the backup pre-recorded version. Uh, and as usual, this is your host. Um, oh, screw it. I'll just say Janitor Sean this time. Hey, it's Janitor Sean. Uh, so named by Phil the No Swear Gamer. And um, what else do I have to say? I don't know. Um, before I go any further, I just want to give a shout out to Victor Marlin of the Ten Pence Arcade Podcast to whom I will link in the show notes, of course. Uh, Victor had some very kind words for this show. Thank you so much, Victor. And of course, if you're into arcade gaming, I highly recommend you check out Ten Pence Arcade Podcast. It is based out of England. So if you're from England and you like arcade games, there's absolutely no reason that you should not be listening avidly. If you are not from England and you like video games, there is no reason you should not be listening avidly. <laughs> Victor and uh, Sean Holly, they are a fun duo to listen to, and I highly enjoy them. But other than that, hmm, it's been kind of just a crazy couple of weeks just getting ready for Midwest Gaming Classic. And if you are listening to this on Saturday, April 8th, I will be there with Jimmy G from Pie Factory Podcast. We have a Pie Factory Podcast table. Where is it? I really don't know at this time. Uh, we might not even know until we actually get there where we're going to be. But we will have a table there. You can demo any of the homebrews that uh, I've talked about here on this podcast so far, including a couple I haven't yet that are scheduled to be covered in this podcast, and a couple that are as yet unscheduled but will eventually be covered, and as of this moment that I'm recording, are not yet available for the general consumption only to Atari Age subscribers. And I'm specifically talking about Bentley Bears Crystal Quest and Super Circus Atari. Bob DiCrescenzo, a.k.a. Pac-Man Plus, was kind enough to allow us to demonstrate those games ahead of the release. So if you want to check them out, come on to the Pie Factory podcast table at Midwest Gaming Classic in Brookfield, Wisconsin. And I will also have my Ed Lydon Supreme... Um, What's, okay, what's this thing called? Uh, let me pull it out here. I will have my Ed Ladin All Play 4-8 Supreme joystick available there for demonstration purposes there. So that way you can play these homebrews. You can try out these homebrews on a decent controller. So you don't have to deal with that stupid pain line controller as it's called. But, uh, in other 7800 news, I mentioned before on this podcast that I just purchased a backup Atari 7800 and that it worked great. Well, it wasn't working so great because I noticed it's for some cartridges, it was getting kind of sensitive. Like if you tap the cartridge, the game would just screw up and you get just garbage on the screen. But I figured, you know what? I could probably live with that besides just a backup. Well, I ordered an AV mod for it and um, it was like 13 bucks on eBay or something. It's, an, it's a mod I've done a couple of times before. Really easy mod. So it comes in the mail and I didn't realize it also comes with one of those color changing LEDs. Yeah, the color actually changes like gradually when uh, you have the machine powered on. It's actually pretty cool. So 
let's see, when was it? It was, um, previous, it was a uh, Friday, Friday night, March 31st. When I started doing the mod, I figured, you know what? This will be pretty easy. I've done it before. Shouldn't take more than an hour. It was freaking impossible seemingly, especially because I had already removed the RF shield from it. So that part was already taken care of, but I was finding it almost impossible to desolder stuff off the board, even at the highest possible temperature, my soldering iron goes. And I didn't remember having that problem before. And something that the instructions really, really need to point out, if you're going to do a mod that requires desoldering, like there's that, uh, I'm not the biggest electronics genius in the world, far from it. So I'm going to sound really dumb for any of you who are electronics geniuses. Part of the instructions calls for the removal of a chip that's attached to where you would normally plug in a cable to your TV because you're not going to need it anymore. And one set of instructions I saw said, just go ahead and remove that entire silver box that contains the port. And that was what was giving me a hard time. There is a ton of solder on that thing or a solder if you're anywhere but the United States, by the way. And I would hold the soldering iron up forever and nothing would come up. And the thing is like at the advice of someone else, I was using like a really pointy tip of my soldering iron because people recommend that for precision. And sure enough, it actually, if you get like a really pointy, like pencil style tip on your soldering iron, it's really great for precision. The problem is it is terrible for that little metal box you have to remove because the solder joints, I guess, are so huge. You need like a chisel tip in order to get a really good flow going there. So yeah, I switched to a chisel tip and finally that stuff came out. But I was having all kinds of other difficulties with stuff that wouldn't desolder. And long story short, I put the mod together. The mod came with a 6.8K resistor for, for the Tia sound so you could have a nice pokey Tia balance. I put in the color changing LED, worked great. Thing is, when I powered up the modified 7800, it had a hard time staying focused. And it turned out that right behind the cartridge port on the 7800, there's a voltage regulator. That thing was kind of loose and it's screwed in place to a little bracket on the board. So I unscrewed it from the bracket. The thing came right out of the slot. Like basically the solder was gone. So I was like, ah, there's the problem. So I'm trying to put the thing back on the board. I desoldered what was left on the board. The holes were nice and wide open. I put it back in the board and the freaking legs, the pins on the voltage regulator snapped right off. And I was so mad. So basically, essentially, I now have only one 7800 and that's the main one I've been using for 11 years. But Hey, it turns out the voltage regulators are easy to find. So I ordered a pair online for a couple of bucks that should it should be here in a matter of days. So, Hey, at least I know what's going on there, but man, it took me two freaking days to get that far. It took me two days just to break my new Atari 7800. <laughs> but one thing I got to say, if you're looking to replace the lead, this was kind of a stumbling block for me at first. One thing I should tell you, if you're going to mod the led on your 7800. Now, those of you who've never dealt with soldering an led, LEDs have two pins, a short one and a long one. And I believe the short one is negative. The long one is positive. And of course you got to put it in the right way. And here was where the stumbling came in for me. When I ordered the mod kit, it didn't come with instructions. And in fact, the eBay description said, just search online. There are plenty of instructions that'll tell you how to put a mod kit into your 7,800. And sure enough, there are. 
problem. None of them tells you how to put the LED into the system properly. I figured, you know what? Screw it. I'll just try it anyway. And from what I gathered, if you put the LED in wrong, just as long as you turn it off, as soon as you realize what the problem is and flip it around the other way, you should be fine. So I desoldered the existing LED, pulled it out, and it turns out that the legs were not trimmed at all. They can't be trimmed or else they don't go in. So it was actually pretty easy to figure out which side I was supposed to install the LED. So I did, fired it up, and it worked perfectly. It was kind of bright. I think that there might need to be a resistor put in there somewhere. I don't know how to do that, though. I don't know where the resistor goes. I don't know. I don't know where, how much power the resistor should have. Um, again, I'm not an electronics person here that much. I know how to solder. That's pretty much it. But I was just glad to know that I got the LED in there and that it worked. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. So those are my adventures in Atari 7800 land. I'm going to share some feedback I got uh, from Ground Trooper on Atari Age. He says, first of all, let me say thanks for all your... And then nothing else for the community. I think you forgot a word there. I love that you took on the 7,800 homebrew podcast. I love it. And I'm just starting the pie factory also on that note. Am I remembering correctly? You mentioning on the 7,800 podcast that you had some short extension cables that you leave plugged into your 7,800 to reduce stress on the controller ports, printed circuit board connections when you are switching between different controllers. Can I ask where you got them? How long are they? I'm very interested in getting some for my daily driver, 2600 and 7800. And he goes on to say, thanks, Sean. And he spells it uh, S-H-A-W-N, which of course is incorrect. I spell it phonetically, S-E-A-N, which is, well, phonetic if you're Gaelic at least. (laughs) But uh, he says, we have a TV weatherman out here in Phoenix, a really hard gig, who spells it S-E-A-N and pronounces it like scene, kind of (laughs) different. Oh, and by the way, I also mentioned in a previous episode that I use an extension cord for the Atari Vox because the way the Atari Vox is built, it won't fit in an Atari 7800 without some modification. Like you'll have to either take the Atari Vox out of its plastic cover or use some kind of extension cable. So I use an extension cable and the ground tripper says, yeah, I've heard that about Atari Vox. I'm pretty sure it was one of your podcasts, or maybe feedback on Phil's 7800 or Fergus 2600 casts. I'm pretty sure I heard it from your great radio voice, puts radio in quotes. No one has probably told you this, but you sound a lot like a more subdued Ron Wolfley who announces the Arizona Cardinals games. He's a little bit more animated all the time, but you both have a deep, similar sounding voice. LOL. And he put a link to some uh, Ron Wolfley footage on YouTube. And I can kind of see that, except his voice is a little bit more deep like this. So yeah, and uh, Ground Trooper, thanks so much for the for the kind words. It's really, really nice of you. I really appreciate that. On your mention of radio, uh, I, I don't think I mentioned this on this podcast before, but I actually used to be in radio for a short time. But to answer Ground Trooper's question, um, I really am not a billion percent sure where I got the extension cord, but I think it, it might have been from Ed Ladden. He sells them on edladden.com. Put a link in the show notes. Um, I might've gotten one from eBay. Cause if you uh, look on eBay for like Atari extension cords and things like that, you'll find something like that. And thing is you should make sure ahead of time, if you're getting an extension cord for your controller, that it is specifically geared towards say Atari, Sega Genesis, or any or Commodore 64, Amiga, any of those computers and consoles that use that nine pin port. 
You can get just a generic 9-pin extension cable, but those generic cables are typically meant for 9-pin serial ports and old PCs, and they have a thick plastic coating around the, around the plug, which will make it difficult, if not impossible, to plug it into your 7800. So that's why you really want to, want to try as best as you can to get a specifically Atari-centric extension cord just to save yourself the trouble. So, um, again, thanks again, Ground Trooper. That was um, very kind of you to, send, to uh, send that feedback and to say, those, say what you said. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. I also heard from Harry Dodgson, the developer of Combat 1990, which, of course, was covered in the previous episodes. So Harry says, hi, just a few addendums. One, oh, by the way, I mentioned on the Combat 1990 episode that you need a pain line controller or a pain line compatible controller, such as an Ed Ladin or Uber Arcade controller. So this is uh, what his first bullet point is about. He says, you can play it with a 2600 one-button joystick. Didn't know that. It fires, then pops on the shields. It took extra coding to detect the type of joystick. That, that's really cool, by the way, that he did that. Uh, I know there are other games, like Xevious, for example, can detect whether you're using a 7800-compatible uh, stick or a 2600-compatible stick. And um, I know Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest is compatible with both, but you have to change the difficulty switches. I'll get to that later, of course. <laughs> anyway, um, Harry goes on to say, Number two. I'm surprised you managed to get all my history off the web. Did you find the article where I was declared the grandfather of homebrew? It was a spec piece done by a guy who wrote a few gaming history books affiliated with Good Deal Games. It was titled something like New Life for Old Consoles. Number three, Lance must have changed the box. My version is cardboard with the story glued to the back of the box. Oh, by the way, that third bullet point that Harry just brought up, Harry wasn't the only one to comment on the uh, the boxing that I talked about. Now, remember what I talked about for Combat 1990, the box that mine came in was a clear plastic box with the artwork as an insert up in the front of the box. It looked kind of like the same kind of a box that, say, a pair of headphones or something would ship in. But, um, of course, you just heard that Harry said that... Uh, that his was a cardboard box with a story glued to it. The story of mine came as a separate piece of paper laminated. And TrekMD on Atari.io said, I guess these come boxed differently depending on when or where you get them. Mine came in a cardboard box with the same artwork. Looking forward to listening to the podcast. Thanks to TrekMD. And um, so, yeah, I guess that that might be a, be the case. It might also be that because Lance is still recovering from a car accident, and he has other people helping him out, that they might that he might have said, "Look, just do what you can and ship the game out. Just make sure you just complete the." I really don't know, but hey, either way, I got my Combat 1990 cartridge, and I was really happy with it. Um, anyway, moving on to Harry's feedback. Number four, as I recall the contest, there were four entries and four prizes. I suggested that everyone should get a prize, but I never got mine. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the uh, discussion threads, that they were, there were going to be participation prizes for that. So yeah, those of you who didn't get Harry what he needs, um, get on with it, people. Anyway, going back to uh, Harry Dodgson here, he says... Did you know that the three Atari 2600 games that I included on the monitor cartridge are fully authorized derivative works? Many years later, it became popular for people to hack released games, like the 7800 Pac-Man you mentioned. 
So yeah, I did not know that actually. I I did not know that. I uh, I might have missed that when I did the research, but yeah. Um, Harry, if you're listening, thanks so much. And Harry, if you're not listening, uh, yeah, I don't care. Thanks anyway. <laughs> but speaking of the monitor cartridge, I did find out a few more details. Um, now the monitor cartridge, the or as it's uh, officially known, the the Atari seventy eight hundred slash twenty six hundred monitor cartridge. That was probably the very first 7800 homebrew ever, ever. And that came out, what what did I say, 1993, I think it was? And Harry had offered it to Atari. He brought it to Atari. He said, why don't you guys sell this? It'll encourage home gamers to make their own 7800 games. The only thing is, though, it required the keyboard controller, you know, the one that you would use for the 2600 titles, basic programming, brain games, all that good stuff. Well, that was a problem because Atari was no longer manufacturing that controller. So Atari turned down the offer. So what happened was Harry marketed the monitor cartridge on his own. And I had mentioned that Harry had recycled old hat trick cartridges to make his monitor cartridges. Well, if what I read is correct, he bought those hat trick cartridges for a buck a pop at a big lots store. And, um, I didn't know big lots existed back then. <laughs> Uh, really? Well, actually, yeah, maybe I did. I don't know. I don't know, man. If only I knew big lots sold that kind of stuff, <laughs> but anyway, um, he bought the hat trick cartridges from big lots and, uh, they were dirt cheap. And then when he made the monitor cartridges, he advertised them for sale, not only in the video 61 catalog, but also on Usenet. Yeah. Remember the Usenet news groups? So anyway, thanks again, Harry. It was nice to get your comments on the episode. Oh, by the way, when I was putting the links together for the show notes in the previous episode, Combat 1990, when I went to the Video 61 site, I noticed that under Combat 1990, it said that it was on backorder. And my first thought was, oh my God, was that because of this podcast? Were people buying Combat 1990 in anticipation of that episode of the podcast? And I know a couple of people did buy Combat 1990 after I put out a call for feedback on it. But that just kind of blew me away, just the thought that that might have been what happened. So if that is indeed what happened, because people bought Combat 1990 because of this podcast, well, thank you so much. That That's really mind-blowing. It really is. But uh, wow, um, I'm glad to see that people are supporting the homebrew developers out there. And uh, let's see, going back to Atari.io, there is a message from, whoa, hello something happening in the neighborhood. I live down the street from a fire department, so we get that all the time. The apartment is actually pretty well soundproofed. I mean, I can't hear the neighbors, but we can hear police sirens and ambulances and things. But anyway, Great Offender says, just listen to episode six, Junior Pac-Man. And I love the April Fool's story you told. So good. I was wondering, was Albert in on the joke? Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Great Offender. And yeah, Albert was definitely in on the joke. He absolutely was. That There's no question about that. Uh, and something that I should have mentioned before is that if you hear me talk about an April Fool's joke on this podcast, you pretty much know right away what happens. You pretty much know, oh, you know what? It became a reality. <laughs> so yeah, that that's the nice thing about it. I mean, people grow weary of the April Fool's Day releases, but you know what? Screw it. As long as you get a good game out of it, that's the important thing. So yeah, there we go. And I have no other way to end this other than awkwardly. So there. <laughs> 
But anyway, that's it for the feedback for now. Thank you for uh, thank you all for sending in your feedback. You can send your feedback to homebrew78 at fab4it.com, F-A-B and then the number 4it.com, that is. And I will take text or audio, and you can reach me over Twitter at homebrew78. And um, there's a Facebook group, and of course on atari.io and Atari Age in the message boards, there are threads for this podcast. But having said all that, let's get into the focus of today's topic, and that is Super Pac-Man. To get an understanding of how Super Pac-Man happened in the first place, it probably helped to go all the way back to the original Pac-Man. Pac-Man was designed by Toru Iwatani, and it was released in Japan by Namco on May 22nd, 1980, and in North America by Midway on October 26th, 1980. Now, I don't need to go into great detail about the sensation that Pac-Man was and all the Pac-Man fever, but worth mentioning is that it did start to get women into the arcades. Women liked the Pac-Man game, and women were not known to be gamers, so this was kind of revolutionary. However, expert players soon found Pac-Man to be too easy and, well, dull upon repeated playing. So Midway was starting to get concerned that the Pac-Man craze was going to fade away soon, which meant the possibility of losing female gamers in the arcades. That possibility could be very real. So Midway reached out to the folks in Japan with their concerns, and they said, look, Pac-Man needs a sequel if we're going to keep these players. So the folks at Namco responded and said, don't worry, we actually are working on a sequel as we speak, which was true, by the way. However, Midway just couldn't wait too long. And this will be explained in much greater detail in a future episode. But because Midway wanted to act fast, they bought the rights to a game called Crazy Otto. And Crazy Otto was a Pac-Man hack that was designed by a company called GCC. I do believe we mentioned them in a previous episode. (laughs) Crazy Otto featured changing maze layouts, bonus prizes that floated around the mazes rather than staying in one place, and artificial intelligence enhancements that would prevent patterns from easily being devised. Does this all sound familiar? (laughs) But with minimal input from a reluctant Namco, Midway took Crazy Otto and turned it into a game called Ms. Pac-Man, and Ms. Pac-Man was released on January 13th, 1981. Namco really wasn't thrilled with Ms. Pac-Man because the gameplay was too similar to that of Pac-Man. Namco's philosophy was if you're going to release a sequel, you'd have to make it significantly different from its predecessor rather than just making it a rehash of a previous game. Well, Despite Namco's misgivings of what Midway did, turns out that Ms. Pac-Man was an even bigger smash hit than the original Pac-Man was, and it went on to become one of the most successful arcade video games of all time, if not the most successful arcade video game of all time. But remember that timeline from October 1980 to January 13th, 1981. That is not a long time. It didn't take long for people to get tired of Pac-Man. But in the meantime, when all this is happening, there's still no sign of the sequel Namco said that they were working on. So, of course, Midway wanted to continue to capitalize on Pac-Man. They're like, look, we had Pac-Man, which was a smash. We have Ms. Pac-Man, which is an even bigger smash. We got to keep the momentum going. 
So an entire year goes by and there's still no official sequel. So on March 13th, 1982, Midway released an enhanced version of Pac-Man and called it Pac-Man Plus. And again, there will be a lot more about that in a later episode. And this time there was neither any input nor approval from Namco. So Pac-Man Plus comes, oh, excuse me, exciting new Pac-Man Plus comes out and there's still no appearance of the official Pac-Man sequel that Namco had promised. So on May 1st, 1982, Bally Midway released another Pac-Man game. This time it was a pinball machine called Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man. So a few months later, Namco's long-awaited official Pac-Man sequel called Super Pac-Man was released in Japan on August 11th, 1982, and finally in North America on October 1st, 1982. Now listen to that date again, October 1st, 1982. When did I say Pac-Man was released here in the United States? October 26, 1980. So virtually two years had passed between the original Pac-Man and the first official sequel. Had Midway not gone against Namco's wishes and just sat back and waited for Super Pac-Man to come out? Wow, it's it just daggers the mind to think about what dire straits Midway could have been in before they actually were in dire straits. But let's talk about Super Pac-Man itself. It was designed also by Toru Iwatani, as Pac-Man was. However, Super Pac-Man was not a success. At least it wasn't here in the United States. People were put off by the different style of gameplay, which I'll talk about later on in this episode, of course, and some people found it difficult to control the Super Pac-Man character. But, despite its lack of success, Super Pac-Man did have several home conversions over the years. The Commodore 64 and the PC had versions of Super Pac-Man designed by Beam Software. Remember those Jack-specific plug-and-play things? Well, uh, one of them had Super Pac-Man. The Palm PDA devices had a version of Super Pac-Man. iOS had a version of Super Pac-Man. And many of the Namco collections on some of the more modern gaming consoles also had Super Pac-Man. There were prototypes done for Atari's 5200 console and corresponding 8-bit computers in 1984. Atari wasn't really thrilled with the game itself. They didn't think Super Pac-Man was an exciting title, but they figured, you know what, we have the license to release it, so let's go ahead and program it. But unfortunately, they never did actually release it. And of course, because this episode exists, you know Super Pac-Man eventually ended up on the Atari 7800. So let's take a look at how that happened. Bob DiCrescenzo, aka Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age, first made public his version of Super Pac-Man on October 10th, 2008 by posting a work-in-progress version on Atari Age. Part of the reason he posted the work in progress was to ask for help with a few bugs he was encountering, particularly a weird glitch when uh, Blinky would move in a certain way. There were some users who found some various bugs in the high score table entry, and Bob credited Ken Siders, aka Confused, with helping out with some color issues he was having. So Bob posted various versions of the ROM files that, so that people could test them in emulators, which many people did, and gave him some feedback and bug reports just as expected. But work carried on through November, meaning that Bob would not have time to do a special Christmas game he was thinking of doing. 
But um, somehow I have a feeling that nobody minded that the Christmas game was sacrificed if it meant that a near-perfect Super Pac-Man conversion was about to happen. On December 11th, Mark Oberhäuser posted pictures of his box designs for both Super Pac-Man and uh, the game we're going to be talking about in the next episode, Space Invaders. That day, Bob also posted a PDF version of the manual. Now, Bob had previously done a few other Pac-Man games, but he had to make some changes in the designs due to the nature of how Super Pac-Man worked. For one thing, he had to change the design of the monsters slightly from what people were used to from his prior Pac-Man games. Also, there were some complaints about the score being difficult to read in the earlier Pac-Man games, so Bob made the score display in Super Pac-Man double-size, meaning that unlike in the arcade version, he couldn't display the high score at the top of the screen during gameplay. And in the translation of the arcade game to the Atari 7800, Bob had to make another concession. The arcade version of Super Pac-Man has several sound voices available to use, but the Atari 7800 only has two voices, which meant that Bob had to make some sacrifices in terms of how many different sounds could play at once. There's an intermission screen that has a really ginormous Pac-Man in the arcade Super Pac-Man, but he had to make a change to that as well because getting the proper arcade proportions meant that Bob would need an additional nine sprites that were not available. But other than that, development of Super Pac-Man went a lot quicker than, say, that of Junior Pac-Man. I don't remember exactly when Super Pac-Man was released to the Atari Age store, but the earliest review posted in the Atari Age store is from July 24th, 2010. Some copies were also made available through Good Deal Games, as it turns out that Mike at Good Deal Games and Bob are very good friends. The box was made available, but not through either store. You actually have to order it directly from Mark Oberhäuser. I'll put a link to both Mark's site and the Super Pac-Man page in the Atari Age store in the show notes. And by the way, speaking of Mark Oberhäuser, I don't remember if I mentioned this before, but if you're going to order boxes from Mark Oberhäuser, if you're in the United States, just giving you a heads up that in the online form, the United States is not a selectable option. You actually have to email Mark directly about that, but he will make sure you get the boxes that you want. I've ordered from him uh, once or twice, and by the way, very happy with both the transaction and the content. I mentioned that Bob had to make some alterations to his previous Pac-Man designs for Super Pac-Man because of the differences in Super Pac-Man. Well, why don't we talk about Super Pac-Man in and of itself, its gameplay, and how it is different from the previous Pac-Man games. Now, remember, I talked about how Namco's logic was that a true sequel must have significantly different gameplay rather than just recycling the gameplay of the original. So, does Super Pac-Man actually follow the formula of Pac-Man? Well, in some ways, yes, but other ways, no. As before, you are Pac-Man and you're being chased in a horizontally symmetrical maze with an escape tunnel on either side of the maze and the monster's regeneration pen in the middle of the screen. As before, there is a siren in the background. As before, you are being chased by four monsters, Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde, each with his own level of intelligence and speed, and pretty much the same level of intelligence and speed as in the original Pac-Man, except they all move a little bit faster. Actually, the general gameplay of Super Pac-Man is a little bit faster. As before, you have four energizers, or as I'm going to call them in this podcast, 
or as I'm going to call them in this episode, power pills, which will temporarily allow you to eat the monsters whose eyes return to the pen to regenerate. As before, there are animated intermissions after you clear a certain number of mazes. And as before, your goal is to eat all of the edibles on the screen. Well, maybe not all the edibles. Let me explain. You are required to eat what are considered food items, all of which are behind locked gates. In order to open the gates, there are 37 in total, you need to eat one of many keys scattered throughout the maze, and your goal is to clear all the food items, power pills, and super pills from the maze. You don't need to eat all the keys in order to advance to the next round. That's just one difference between Pac-Man and Super Pac-Man. Now, you heard me mention super pills a second ago. Well, what are they? Well, in addition to the power pills, the maze will contain two super pills. The super pills temporarily turn Pac-Man into Super Pac-Man. And while Pac-Man is Super Pac-Man, he is invincible. He can break through the gates without unlocking them. And with the addition of a super speed button on the control panel, the arcade control panel, by the way, is ambidextrous. There's a joystick in the middle and a super speed button on either side. But with that super speed button, you can make Super Pac-Man move a lot faster by holding it down. During the time that Pac-Man is Super Pac-Man, the monsters are going to be elongated, stretched out. And the reason for that is they want you to kind of feel that you are seeing a bird's eye view of the maze as Super Pac-Man. So you are seeing the monsters as Super Pac-Man would see them as he would fly around really fast over them. So that's why they're stretched. I talked about the super pills, but the power pills, the energizers, they do have a slightly different behavior from the energizers in previous Pac-Man games. As usual, the power pills allow you to temporarily eat the monsters who turn blue and run away from you, and as you expect, when you eat a monster, his eyes return to the pen in the middle of the screen, and the monster regenerates. However, if you eat another power pill while one or more of the monster's eyes are still making their way to the pen, that monster is going to regenerate wherever the eyes are in the maze, and the regenerated monsters are going to be blue and vulnerable until the effects of that power pill run out. After you clear the first two rounds, you have, well, you have an intermission, and then you have a timed bonus stage. During that bonus stage, you are Super Pac-Man the entire length of the bonus stage, which means that the super speed button is functional throughout the entire stage, and also there are no monsters during the bonus stage. You're basically on your own. Your job, as usual, is to clear the maze, the food items, the power pills, the super pills, and you do that before time runs out. And I'll explain the timing later on. Sometimes immediately before and sometimes immediately after the bonus stage, you get an intermission screen not terribly dissimilar from the intermission screens from Pac-Man. The bonus stages appear every fourth round after the third round bonus stage. So basically, the third round is a bonus stage, seventh round is a bonus stage, etc., Another feature introduced in Super Pac-Man is that Pac-Man can now enter the monster's pen. He doesn't even need to unlock it, nor does he need to be Super Pac-Man, but enter at your own risk, though. Keep in mind, that's a box with just one entrance. Even if you're under the influence of a power pill, once you eat a monster when it's inside the pen, it's going to regenerate almost immediately, so get out as soon as you can. Oh, and did you ever notice how in the game Pac-Man and actually Ms. Pac-Man 2 and Pac-Man Plus, really, and Junior Pac-Man, you might be being chased by a monster or more monsters, and then all of a sudden the monsters reverse directions and your butt is saved. 
and the monsters basically split apart and go into different parts of the maze. That was kind of a cool feature. Just when you think you're about to die, suddenly you are safe. But that doesn't really happen in Super Pac-Man, but instead, at certain times, and I was unable to figure out why, the monsters will just suddenly freeze for a second and just shake. That kind of has that same effect that sometimes you're thinking you're doomed, but all of a sudden you have a chance to break away while the monsters freeze and shake. They have seizures, basically. I don't know why. If anybody knows why this is in the game, I would love to know. Homegroove78 at fab4it.com. In previous incarnations of Pac-Man, both the original and the two Midway variations that came out before Super Pac-Man, you can set the game to give you a bonus life at a certain score, whether it be 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. That is, if any bonus life at all. But of course, those games only allow you to have one bonus life. Super Pac-Man can be configured for as few as zero bonus lives. Otherwise, your first bonus life is at 30,000 points. Yeah, notice I said first bonus life. You can actually configure the arcade game to give you one or more extra bonus lives at various other scores. Like maybe every, like maybe 30,000 and then every 100,000 after that, etc. There are so many different combinations, permutations of how you can configure bonus lives, but I'm not going to get into that right now, especially because it's not the same in the Atari 7800 version. And this is an Atari 7800 podcast, not an arcade podcast. But as with the original Pac-Man, the maze layout does not change. But the color of the maze walls does change from time to time as you progress through the rounds. I know, big deal, the color changes. But hey, at least you're not looking at the same freaking thing every time you start a new round. Unlike, say, with Pac-Man. But also, as you're moving on through the rounds, the gameplay gets more difficult. The power pills will give you less time to eat monsters. The super pills give you less time to be super Pac-Man. Oh, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but when you start the game, the keys open gates that are close by. And some of the keys are going to open more than one gate. But the further you progress, the farther away the gates are that the keys unlock. So you can say grab a key that's right next to a gate, but it actually opens a gate clear on the other side of the maze. And also, as you progress, a single key will open fewer gates. And one new feature in Super Pac-Man that was not present in any of the previous versions of Pac-Man was a high score entry table. You have to score at least 30,000 points to reach that high score table, and you're allowed to enter up to three characters, just like any other game of the time when you could enter characters. The characters allowed are simply just A through Z and period. And also unique to Super Pac-Man is that with the default configuration, the arcade game has sound effects during attract mode. Hey, we might as well talk about how you score points in Super Pac-Man. Well, just as with Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, when you eat the monsters, you score 200, 400, 800, and 1600 points, respectively, for each monster you eat while under the influence of a single power pill. If you eat a power pill or a super pill, you get 100 points. And when you eat the food items in the maze, basically the equivalent of the dots in the previous Pac-Man games, the score for those food items is 10 times whatever the round number is. For example, the first round, the apple round, you get 10 points for the apple. The second round, the banana round, you get 20 points for eating a banana, etc. And the score caps once you reach 160 points per food item. And the food items in order of appearance are... Like I said, apple, banana, and then donut, hamburger, fried egg, corn on the cob, shoe. Yeah, that's right. Apparently shoe is a food in Pac-Land. 
cake slice, toadstool, pineapple, coffee cup, mushroom, uh, I guess it's a different mushroom from what the toadstool is, a bell, because let's face it, Pac-Man needs roughage in his diet, a four-leaf clover, a Galaxian flagship, does a Galaxian flagship appear in every Namco game? And um, a wrapped present. By the way, the Atari 7800 version has a slightly different lineup of food items. Like, I think there's a melon in there, and there was something else in there. I can't really remember off the top of my head. But some of the food items are not 100% the same as they were in the arcade version. If you eat a key, you get 50 points. And if you burst through a gate as Super Pac-Man, you get 200 points. Now, most Pac-Man games have a bonus prize that'll appear either under the monster's pen or dancing around the maze, floating around the maze. Well, Super Pac-Man has a bonus item in the shape of a star, and that shows up between the two square islands that are under the monster's pen. And that bonus star will appear when you eat a combination of 15 food items, super pills, and power pills. And it's only up there for a short time. While that bonus star is on the screen, those two little square islands that I talked about are going to show different food items. And the images of the food items in those boxes constantly change, kind of like with Press Your Luck, the game show. Eat the bonus star when the food items do not match, and you will get between 200 points and 1,600 points, depending on the stage. The first stage, you get 200 points, and every four stages after that, the point value doubles and caps at 1,600 points. If you eat the bonus star when the two images in those islands match, but the image is not that of the round's current food item, like let's say, for example, you're on the hamburger stage, but the images that you matched are images of a donut, you get 2,000 points. If you eat the star and those two images match and they're the images of the round's current food item, for example, if you're on the hamburger round and the two matching images are of a hamburger, then you score 5,000 points. In the bonus stages, your countdown timer is in the form of bonus points, starting at 20,000 points, and 100 points are deducted from that bonus every tenth of a second. If you clear the bonus round before time runs out, you get a bonus of however many points are left on the timer. And we might as well talk about the high scores, and specifically this will be about the Atari 7800 version. Remember how I said in a previous episode you're going to hear the name Wilson Oyama a lot in this podcast? Well, guess what? Here he is again. He scored 196,000 via emulation on the default settings, and this was achieved as part of the Atari Age High Score Club, which ended on March 9th, 2016. And um, I looked at that, and I don't see any score. I don't see any participation. I was like, wait a minute. How did I miss this? Oh, well. And if we go over to Twin Galaxies, the official world record keeper of video games we see that there's an entry for the Atari 7800 Super Pac-Man. And again, with the default settings, the world record score is only 95,250, which was verified May 20th, 2016. And that high score is, um, oh, that sounds like a really awesome guy. His name is Sean Courtney. Huh. What's weird is despite Super Pac-Man not being a huge success, Pac-Man Plus was actually more successful than Super Pac-Man was. The Super Pac-Man character actually appears in a number of other places besides the game Super Pac-Man. For example, there is a game released for the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo in 1994 called Pac-Man 2 The New Adventures, and there are times when Pac-Man can actually turn into Super Pac-Man. 
Pac-Man can also appear as Super Pac-Man in Super Smash Bros. for the Nintendo 3DS and Wii U, and the Saturday Morning Pac-Man cartoon, which I watched religiously back when it was on. That Pac-Man cartoon had a couple of appearances by a character named Super Pac, however, that Super Pac character was a completely different character from Pac-Man. It's not that Pac-Man turned into Super Pac-Man. Never fear! Super Pac will catch you! Me personally, I was I always loved Super Pac-Man. I liked the unique gameplay and especially the new sounds in the game, the music and everything. And by the way, that I didn't mention this before, but the music was composed by Nobuyuki Onogi. The arcade cabinet was very attractive. The side art had a picture of Pac-Man with the little two black eyes that are in the shape of Pac-Man and Pac-Man's mouth was facing the front of the cabinet and the cabinet was carved so that it essentially traced the outline of Pac-Man's mouth. So that was really cool. I first played uh, the arcade Super Pac-Man at the Kroger store in Bourbon, Illinois shortly after it was released. I was really excited to see that thing. What about the Atari 7800 homebrew version of Super Pac-Man? Well, Quite honestly, I cannot speak highly enough about that game. If you like the arcade version of Super Pac-Man, and there are actually a lot of Super Pac-Man fans, despite the lack of success it had in the arcades, you'll really, really enjoy Bob DiCrescenzo's 7800 port. It is so faithful to the arcade version that it's scary. And this is another homebrew that I like to use as an example of how, despite popular belief, you can actually get some really good sound out of that Tia chip in the 7800. The sound quality in the 7800 Super Pac-Man is superb, and it is 100% Tia. There is no pokey chip. Interestingly, Super Pac-Man isn't listed among the 7800 bestsellers in the Atari Age store, which on one hand kind of baffles me because it absolutely should be a bestseller, but then again, all the titles that are listed as bestsellers should be bestsellers anyway, so hey, I guess you gotta cut something off when you run out of room, right? As per usual, I asked for feedback on the 7800 Super Pac-Man on the Atari Age forums, and I heard from Save2600 who says, We had the arcade cocktail table at home, B-I-T-D, and used to play with my dad until the wee hours of the night. It was one of his favorites and mine as well. 7800 version is definitely a solid plus game, probably more of a Hall of Fame game, really. Difficulty doesn't ramp up too quickly, but the game still feels right compared to the arcade by most counts. Another excellent conversion for our beloved system, and is still one of my all-time favorite Pac-Man games to this day. Love the concept and strategy of the gate-key dynamics. Really helps to keep things interesting in a static maze. Yeah, I agree with you on that uh, save 2600. What's interesting is that whole, the, the gate and key combination thing, that's one of the reasons cited as to why people didn't really catch on to the original Super Pac-Man. I guess they were expecting too much of the same old dot-chomping gameplay as before. But yeah, I really do think that was a nice feature. Jinx says, best Pac-Man game ever on the 7800. Solid and plays great. I like this better than all Pac-Man variants. Thanks, Jinx. And the thing is, I don't know what I consider to be the best Pac-Man game in the 7800. Definitely not the original Atari Ms. Pac-Man in the 7800, because Bob did a much better version of that. It's it's so hard. I guess it depends on what you're really in the mood for. I mean, Junior Pac-Man is great. Pac-Man Collection, of course, is probably the best-selling homebrew ever. But 
I don't know, Super Pac-Man is just awesome. Too. Casey Munchkin, too, if you want to count that as a Pac-Man game. But um, Trevor chimes in with, although never seeming to reach the accolades of Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man is a very enjoyable game once it is understood how to play, as it does break away considerably from the original formula. In all honesty, I remember stinking up the joint pretty badly the few times I played this in the arcade. I never made it further than three or four stages. After being emulated under MAME, as the old saying goes, practice makes perfect, and I found myself enjoying this game more and more. It may not ever receive the warm fuzzies that Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man provide for many. Still, though, it is a very good game that's worth the time and attention. How does it stack up on the 7800? Near perfect, a fantastic port has been created which captures the arcade original excellently. What has become nothing less than a hallmark of his arcade ports to the pro system from Bob, the attention to detail for this game is quite extraordinary. While it can be challenging to take note of some of the similarities between the arcade original and the 7800 port, things such as eyes will turn blue on the way back to the home pen if the energizer is eaten, and eyes do not leave the home pen if a monster is chomped inside of it, are present among a plethora of other things. The above are some of the little details of what helps to make this port arguably the best of all the ones released on classic 8-bit systems. Even where the 7800 can easily fall short, infamously its default Tia sound, you may not believe how incredibly good this game sounds, really nailing the arcade effects quite well. Is there a downside? Well, yes and no. The port is less difficult than the arcade original default. Not Atari 2600 Ms. Pac-Man Teddy Bear easy, but indeed less difficult than the arcade. While it may be nice to play at the full arcade default difficulty, the upside of it not being as difficult is newcomers to the game, or those that may have never been able to improve their gaming on the arcade original, will likely have a considerably easier time playing the 7800 port. To help offset if it is a little too easy for experts at the game, instead of starting with stage 1, the freedom to begin at one of the higher stages is present, a very nice added feature. Super Pac-Man should be a part of every 7800 gamer's library, as it is a blast to play. Becoming super, flying over the monsters and ripping through the doors, trying to nail that bonus with the slots of items, and the cat-mouse chase still very much in place keeps it entertaining and paced well. The changes and upgrades from the forerunners in this series include bonus rounds too, again emphasizing how this game is something old, yet something brand new under the 7800. Trevor, that was very well said, as usual. And I, there's one thing from your post that I do want to address, and that's the difficulty of the game. Something I didn't mention before is that the arcade difficulty has so many different settings that, I don't know, I just don't even want to get into it. But I've been to places where Super Pac-Man just seems a little bit too easy, and places where Super Pac-Man just seems to be impossibly difficult. So there's a huge range of how hard that game can actually be. I mean, my high score on the arcade Super Pac-Man is actually quite a lot higher than my 7800 world record is. So I don't know if I necessarily agree that it's easier on the 7800. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. One thing I'd like to offer up is that it might be a conscious decision on Bob's part, I'm not, I didn't ask him about this. I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but it might be a conscious decision to make it slightly easier 
because it was traditionally the thing to make home console conversions a bit easier than the arcade versions so that people spend more time playing them. Like, for example, I'm just going to throw this out as an example. Like, I know I know there, there, there's a lot of scathing hatred for the 2600 Zaxxon, but this is just a theoretical example. Let's say there's a home conversion of Zaxxon, and it is no less difficult than the arcade version. Well, people like myself would be quite angry because, well, people like myself suck at the arcade Zaxxon. <laughs> and I'd want a version that I could play through and see what happens and all that without having to enable cheats and all that. But, uh, but again, thank you so much, Trevor. That was a great response there. And let's see, Toilet Tunes says, I loved Super Pac-Man in the arcades. If you ever see the cabinet, you know exactly what it is. Oh, so true, so true. Years later, maybe 2002, I bought the PCB, that is the main board, off eBay. My first electronics project was getting it to work in a Ms. Pac-Man cabinet. I still have the PCB. A huge thank you to Bob for bringing one of my favorite games to one of my favorite consoles. Fun fact. While the Pac-Man PCB had two difficulty options, Super Pac-Man PCB has several. Unfortunately, the home port ha only has one, but the level select not present in the arcade makes up for it. And yeah, thanks Toilet Tunes, and you actually addressed the points that I made when I was uh, uh, talking, when, when I was responding to Trevor. So yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, th that's one thing you're never going to hear me talk about, like by, like dealing with the PCBs or anything. I, I personally the, don't want to deal with arcade games other than just playing them. I don't want to have to have one in my apartment. I don't want to have to like figure out how to, how to get them working in certain combinations. I just want to go out and play them. <laughs> yeah. But it is interesting hearing what uh, home arcade people, what home arcade gamers uh, like to do with them. So thank you for sharing that toilet tunes. And Mark Fiorio says, Super Pac-Man always seemed like the redheaded stepchild of the series, but I had fun playing it in the arcades when I was able to find one, which was kind of rare. Robert's version captures the look and feel really well. Very glad I purchased it. And thank you, Mark. Yeah, I totally agree with you all the way about that. And again, Red-Headed Stepchild, that's a perfect description for Super Pac-Man, I think. And it just surprises me to this day that it, was, it wasn't more popular than it was especially because it used the latest hardware while all the while all the midway based Pac-Man spin-offs and sequels that were just hacks of the original they were still using the 1980 hardware and you can absolutely tell the difference with Super Pac-Man. Yeah, that one sentence Robert's version captures the look and feel really well. Yeah, you can pretty much say that about <laughs> about all his uh, conversions from arcade to 7800 or other system to 7800. Thanks again, Mark. And I heard from the very friendly folks over at um, Atari.io as well. Kamikaze2012 says, Never played it on the 7800, but have had the pleasure of trying Super Pac-Man on the 5200. Even if it was only an unreleased title, I believe it had everything spot on with the arcade. It looked and sounded just like the arcade it was based off of. I think the A8s, meaning the Atari 8-bit computers, have this game as well. Thanks, Kamikaze2012. Yeah, it, both of them did have the prototype, I believe, and I think the versions of both have actually have kind of leaked. And I, yeah, I tried the uh, 5200 Super Pac-Man uh, through emulation once. I, I didn't really care for it. And the thing is, like, I'm kind of biased. I don't like the 5200. I really don't. 
And something that I noticed about a lot of the 5200 games is that they seem, I don't know why, but the display on those things seems a little bit dim. I'm talking about both the real thing and an emulation. It's like I almost wish that I could adjust like the contrast or brightness or something. Remember remember those in the old CRT TVs? Well, I don't have a CRT TV anymore, nor do I want one, quite frankly. But I can imagine, I, I don't remember much about it other than thinking and it looks kind of, I, I do remember that the what was white in the arcade version was yellow in the 5200 version. I don't remember much about it, but yeah, I would not be surprised if the sound on that thing was even better because of course the 5200 and the 8 bits had the pokey chip. So yeah, but yeah, really, come on, get with the program, get the 7800 version, save up a few bucks, man. Um, thank you, Kamigazi2012. I appreciate your comment there. And TrekMD adds, Bob has always made great games for the 7800, and this one does not disappoint one iota. Or is it iota? It's probably iota, but everybody says iota. Anyway, sorry about that. Let's uh, resume TrekMD's feedback where he says, The game is a superb adaptation of the arcade original, and though this is not a favorite version of Pac-Man by many, it still has its own charm. I always found the gameplay to be fun for the very reason many people don't like it. It's a different take on the Pac-Man formula. Having Pac-Man eat keys and other objects and then go super to eat through anything is cool. This game mechanic, though, does make the game easier to play than the usual Pac-Man game. The 7800 port looks great and really captures the essence of the arcade well. The mazes look great, the colors are bright, and the arcade sounds are replicated quite well, despite the limitations of the Tia chip. This is one title that should be owned by everyone with an Atari 7800. TrekMD, thanks so much. Yeah, I, you're preaching to the choir here, man. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, absolutely, though. And uh, let me see. Speaking of the sounds being replicated quite well, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but what I really love about this, well, besides everything else, what I really love about the 7800 port is that during the attract screen, you have those sounds. You have this, the attract mode sounds that the arcade game did. And I, man, that is just plain freaking awesome. <laughs> Thanks again, Trek MD. Atari LBC writes, I always liked the Super Pac-Man arcade game growing up, mainly because it was so unusual to see it in arcades or bowling alleys. In terms of gameplay, I much prefer Ms. Pac-Man and Junior Pac-Man. They are more intuitive and the changing mazes add needed variety. That said, Super Pac-Man has a charm all its own. The addition of the Super Pellet and the keys is novel. The graphics are bright and fun. It's still Pac-Man, it's just a different kind of Pac-Man. Super Pac-Man was the first boxed homebrew that I picked up for the 7800. I got it during PRGE 2013, the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, at the Atari Age booth along with some other homebrew items. When I got back to California later that week, I spent considerable time with the game. As with most of Bob's ports, the controls and gameplay elements are spot on. The graphics are well represented. Sound... Well, it's the 7800. The arcade sounds are approximated as well as they could possibly be using the Tia. It's actually quite admirable given the limits of the system. Compared to other ports on classic systems, this is one of the very best. Thanks, Atari LBC, for your thoughts there, and I can't disagree with you at all. And um, th- and something I gotta bring up, I, g- I just gotta let this out. Uh, when my... Pie Factory podcast co-host Jimmy G asked Albert on Atari Age if Atari Age would be represented at Midwest Gaming Classic. 
Albert said, no, it's too far away. And thing is, they are always at Portland Retro Gaming Expo. And uh, Portland, I think, is farther away from uh, where Albert is uh, outside of Austin than the Milwaukee area is. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> and yeah, that is something I never really thought of until just fairly recently, actually, the past couple of years. That thing you mentioned about the changing mazes, I never really noticed until just the last couple of years that in Super Pac-Man, only the color of the mazes will change. And it's interesting to think about this because if you think about, say, the Midway Pac-Man games versus the Namco official Pac-Man games, Ms. Pac-Man, Maze Changes, Junior Pac-Man, the Maze Changes, um, Pac-Man Plus, uh, Maze doesn't change, but uh, I have all kinds of issues with that game, and I'll talk about that later on when I talk about Pac-Man Collection. <laughs> and um, I don't know off the top of my head if the Maze changes on Baby Pac-Man. I haven't played that in a while, and I don't believe it does. But then if you look at the Namco Pac-Man games, like Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man, Pac-and-Pal slash Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, the mazes stay the same. They never change. Just maybe the and, and in Pac and Pal, the color of the maze doesn't even change. The first Namco Pac-Man maze game in which you get a different layout from time to time is Pac-Mania from 1986. So it's it's interesting that the people over at Namco didn't catch on to that or just plain didn't care. But hey, what are you gonna do? Super Pac-Man has a charm all its own. I cannot agree with you more about that. There's something about Super Pac-Man. It's still a Pac-Man game, but there's a certain charm to it. It's almost an exciting charm, if you ask me. <laughs> I love the music in it. The music adds uh, some pretty uh, positive energy to it, and uh, I'm, I really like it a lot myself. But thank you so much, Atari LBC. And uh, oh my goodness, I have a big announcement all of a sudden. We actually have... Our first audio submission. Yay. Let's listen to it. Hello, Sean and fellow listeners of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. This is Andy Ryerson from Super Podcast Brothers. Finally getting in my first submission to the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Before I get to Super Pac-Man, though, I'd like to talk about the first two games that you did on the podcast. That being... Burger Time, I guess the the actual name of the the title for the system, Beef Drop, as well as KC Munchkin. I'll start with Beef Drop because that's the one I like more. Now, Burger Time's not a game I'm any good at. In fact, I'm extremely terrible at it, even worse than I am most old school arcade games. And it's a rare occasion if I even get past the second screen. Getting past the third screen is a, a miracle feat in and of itself for me, but I still find myself popping in Beef Drop into my Atari 7800 just about every time I sit down for a, a session of Atari 7800. I think it compares pretty well to the, the arcade game. I don't have a ton of experience with the arcade game, though, to be honest. I think it might have something to do with the food theme. It's been well documented on Super Podcast Brothers that any game that has a, a food theme, especially one of fast food... I I typically really enjoy that no matter no matter how good or bad the game is. In this case, Burger Time's a great game, an all-time classic. I'm just terrible at it. I I don't like on the second stage how how the 
level sort of funnels down on you. It's just it. Uh, I I'm no good at it. I can't process in my brain how to be good at it. But it's it's still a really impressive game that was pulled off on the Atari seventy eight hundred, and it's one of the at this point only two homebrew titles that I have. I really do need to spend more money at the Atari Age store, don't I? But one of the games that I had purchased but sold some time ago is Casey Munchkin. And the reason I sold Casey Munchkin is because I don't think the Atari 7800 version is very good. I, I've i played the original Odyssey 2 title on a handful of occasions, and to me, the Atari 7800 version, just the controls don't respond well. It, it feels like there's a delay between the time you push a direction on the joystick and Casey Munchkin will actually move around to the screen making the game kind of unplayable for me. I it looks nice. It's it's visually it's a pretty solid representation of the Odyssey 2 game. I I will say I'd no complaints there, but I just the controls are bad and I just didn't have any fun playing it. So I it, as much as it pained me to sell off an Atari 7800 game and it's the only Atari 7800 game I've sold, I just I wouldn't have played it anymore, so I, I figured maybe it could find a better, more loving home elsewhere, but yeah, my, my opinion on Casey Munchkin is it's just it's just not great, and I, I know that might come off as heresy criticizing some of Bob DiCrescenzo's titles, and all the other ones I've played are good, I just, this one didn't work for me, and that that's too bad, because I really, really wanted to enjoy this and have a way to play Casey Munchkin at home, since I don't have an Odyssey 2. Yet, at least. But that brings me to the uh, topic of this episode's game, that being Super Pac-Man. And I love Super Pac-Man. Let me just start off there. I, On our show, I rated it one of my top 10 most tragically underrated games of all time, speaking about the, the arcade game. I I never thought it got its fair shake in the arcades. I It does feel like a proper sequel to me, which is a good thing. I, I don't really consider Miss Pac-Man a sequel to, to Pac-Man. It's, it's, it's kind of just an enhancement, a, a slight modification. And of course, the history about that's been well documented. I don't need to cover that. Uh, on your show, I'm sure everybody kind of knows the story there. But to me, Super Pac-Man was the the proper sequel, and and took the Pac-Man formula, but added all sorts of things with the uh, with the super pellets, and you know, you're not collecting dots as the main thing anymore. You're collecting the prizes and having to collect the keys to unlock the doors. There was just more to do here. There, it, it felt to me like anyway there was there was more strategy and, and more you had to think about and and you had to react quicker too in some instances especially when you were pressing down that button to uh use the super palette i mean if you really wanted to navigate that maze and just the perfect route you had to be precise with your joystick movements and, I, and that was refreshing to me because pac-man is it can be kind of just a slow methodical game and i mean it that's not to say it's easy by any means i just i like the pace of super pac-man a little better and the the timed bonus stages were were a nice little break in the action from you know you, you don't have to worry about the ghosts anymore you just you try to get all the prizes as quick as you can it was it was a nice way to kind of uh to kind of change things up from the the normal gameplay i just i really love super pac-man i i think i might actually even like it more than regular pac-man and miss pac-man for that matter 
And I especially love it on the Atari 7800 via the homebrew cartridge by Bob DiCrescenzo. I, I enjoy this one vastly more than I enjoy Casey Munchkin. It's, it's such a solid representation of the, ar- the arcade game. And for a system like the 7800 that's so overflowing with riches in terms of arcade ports, I mean, we all know that that's what the system does best. And that's kind of the appeal there to have this title come along much later in addition to what was already there is just it's it's awesome and this is right up there for me with food fights if if we're looking across the board at all atari 7800 games both original production and homebrew releases super pac-man is among the best of the best in both regards i if if i had to point to one title in the atari age store and say, this is the one you absolutely need to have. Super Pac-Man would be the one. Now, I don't have a ton of experience, and like I said, I need to, I need to go spend more money in the Atari Age store, and when Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest finally gets released, I will be. But for now, Super Pac-Man is my favorite homebrew game for the system, and one of my favorite games, period. Andy, thank you for your audio submission. Thank you so much. By the way, um, Andy is one of the co-hosts, along with Tim Evans, as you heard uh, him say, the Super Podcast Brothers, which is a retro gaming show. Tim and Andy typically cover uh, kind of like later generation consoles, like say, uh, like stuff from, say, Sega Genesis and later. I mean, yeah, they do go back to older consoles as well, but... Typically when I, at least what sticks out in my mind is that they talk about like more modern-ish retro games, I guess. Like say, uh, between say Sega Genesis and Nintendo 64, uh, well, actually going into the PlayStations as well. But highly recommend giving them a listen. I will put a link to their episode portal, as they call it, in my show notes, as I call it. Uh, Just one little warning, if you haven't heard their show yet... Unlike with uh, this podcast, Andy and Tim are liberal with Anglo-Saxon and uh, Germanic uh, words in which uh, the Latin and French synonyms are perfectly acceptable. Just give you that heads up right there. So if you're language sensitive, uh, just be careful there. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Andy, something I want to address. You are not alone in your criticism of Casey Munchkin, as you probably heard uh, in the Casey Munchkin episode, actually. So... I'm not surprised, I'm not disappointed, because, I mean, hey, you either like it or you don't like it. One thing, though, this this is, uh, sounded like it was a sticking point for you, was the control didn't seem to work very well for you. I wonder if it's because perhaps you've never played Casey Munchkin on an actual Odyssey 2. It could be that Bob reproduced the Odyssey 2 controls so well. Uh, me, personally, I've never played an Odyssey 2. I've only emulated one. But playing an actual Odyssey 2 with the actual Odyssey 2 controllers, I'm guessing it's way different from emulating it, especially because they have those uh, springy joysticks that uh, not many of us are used to, I'm assuming at least, at least those of us who don't have Odyssey 2s. But um, hey, hey, at Midwest Gaming Classic, I'll keep an eye out for you uh, uh, on an Odyssey 2. <laughs> See if maybe you're interested if anybody has one for sale. And you said that uh, if there's one title you should get from the Atari Age store, it's Super Pac-Man. I'm not going to disagree with you. But the problem is there's so many good homebrews available there that it's really, if, if you were only going to get just one, the decision is going to be super, super hard. <laughs> Seriously, if you are a fan of the arcade version, you probably will highly, highly love 
the 7800 version because I think it comes very, very close and it has the same. Vi- and, and one thing I'm surprised you didn't mention, Andy, is the arcade game Mappy uses the same hardware as Super Pac Man. And in fact, uh, when Andy was a guest on Pie Factory Podcast, we talked about Mappy. We, we had discussed about how the vibe in Mappy is similar to the vibe in Super Pac Man. Well, because it uses the same equipment, the sounds are kind of the same. The bonus rounds, even though they're completely different, they have a similar vibe to them. But anyway, thanks again, Andy. Thanks for your contribution. And those of you who also wish to submit audio, go right ahead. Homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And if you don't like emailing large files, you could do perhaps what Andy did, which is uh, if you so have the means. Andy actually uploaded his submission to a web server and gave me the URL. And so that way there wasn't a huge file path. And, and the cool thing about that was he left it in wave format, which is great, which means that it doesn't have that MP3 compression going on. And, um, so instead of sending me a huge 63 megabyte wave file, he just uploaded it to his web server and gave me, uh, gave me a link to it so I could just download it and use it later. So that was pretty cool. If you wish to do that, go ahead. I do believe my mail servers can handle large files. So go ahead and try, and if it bounces back, well, try something else. (laughs) Oh, boy. So um, I believe that is all of the feedback we have about Super Pac-Man. And so closes another episode of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder, you can contact me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. That's F-A-B, the number 4-I-T.com. My Twitter handle is homebrew78. You can reach me via Facebook, via the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast page. You can, oh, what else can you do? Show notes are located at homebrew78.fab4it.com. And if you wish to join the ranks of Jimmy G, whom I thank very much for being a Patreon sponsor, you may be a Patreon sponsor at www.patreon.com slash homebrew78. And um, you can donate uh, as much as you want on a monthly basis. And uh, I would be very, very thankful for that, especially because, <laughs> hint, 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 some new homebrews are about to be released. And, uh, um, that's, I'm just saying is all. And, uh, the YouTube channel, by the way, because I'm stupid and I realized I made a mistake when I set up the channel is actually homebrew 7,800, but Hey, you can figure that out. And also in the Atari age forums and the gaming publications and websites, Subforum, there is a thread for this podcast, and in the Atari 7800 subforum is where I put the feedback threads for specific games, and I do the same thing on Atari.io. And those forums in the Atari 7800 subforum, also you can put feedback for specific games, and in the podcast subforum, there is a thread for this podcast in general. So, anywho, everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. And uh, let's see, games are going to be doing in the future. Well, the next game I'm going to be talking about is another Bob DiCrescenzo game, Space Invaders. And after that, I believe, is Crazy Bricks. And I do believe Scramble will be after that. So, hey, if you want to send in some feedback, be prepared. 
If you're one of those people who needs to get these games so you can follow along, well, hey, now you know what's coming up. And, uh, hey, what else can I say? Thank you again. This is Janitor Sean, and uh, really appreciate you listening. If you are at Midwest Gaming Classic this weekend, uh, come check out the Pie Factory podcast table, which is also doubling as the Atari 7800 homebrew podcast table. Uh, Where am I going to be? Don't know as of this recording. And uh, I'll be there, well, if you're listening the day this is released, I'll be there today, and I will also be there tomorrow. Talk to you next time.